everyone. I'm already nervous. <laughs> Whenever can you hear me? Hello, hello. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it's it's a great honor and opportunity to go to Shanti Deva's text, particularly chapter nine. <laughs> Okay, so what we'll do is we'll spend the first few minutes in settling our mind and body, bringing home our attention to our breath, to this space here and now, to ourselves and to our breath. in being present to our breath, in being aware of our breath. We try to do so alertly, attentively, and ardently. Thereby bringing some elements of clarity, Attention, yes, delight. Next, we will say the recitation, homage to Buddha Shakyamuni. And in preparation for that, I call upon you to visualize the merit field in however way you feel comfortable. Most commonly, we visualize the presence of Shakyamuni Buddha. If you wish, then Visualize Buddha being flanked by, surrounded by his disciples. From those contemporary to him to the present day, 
the whole lineage masters who have kept this precious teaching intact while they also practiced themselves and benefited from them. When we think of them particularly, let our attention go to their inner qualities. In the case of the Buddha, all of the positive qualities having reached full consummate blossoming. Including love and compassion, which are infinite, going to all sentient beings constantly and under the direction of them, under the influence of them, ever engage in enlightened activities to benefit sentient beings at whatever level they can receive the blessings. Think of ourselves being surrounded by fellow sentient beings, getting the space around us, in the midst of which each one of us, to our own mind, is serving as a chant master leading in the recitation and the cultivation. Along with that, Think of all sentient beings in human forms, so that we be convenient in undertaking the visualizations as well as of their recitation, cultivation. Yet at the same time, think of them to be caught in their own predicaments, corresponding to their actual realms of existence. Thinking along these lines, connect with the sentient beings at our basic level of commonality we share. We may call it shared humanity. The basic, fundamental, rightful, justified, yet not always fulfilled, Aspiration to be free, happy. Aspiration to be free of sufferings, miseries, confusion. And the aspiration to be happy, peaceful, joyful. Yet at the same time, how we all fall short of meeting them, not only fall short of meeting them, under the influence of confusion, we end up piling up more sufferings upon ourselves. Given the fact that we are subjected to the afflictions, it's almost like this presently no end to the suffering. Yet at the same time, in the midst of all of this, we depend on each other just for everything. We share in our worries, hopes, confusion, fallacies. Yet at the same time, we also share 
and the basic goodness of each and every sentient being, their potential to fully awaken to the state of Buddhahood, to be of utmost benefit to each other. Along these lines, try to generate a sense of affinity growing into empathy, into compassion, into this special resolve that I would do my best in helping them out. Generating bodhicitta, conjoined with this wisdom of ultimate reality of Paro, interdependence, through and through. So with these cultivations, going both to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and other arhats and aryas that we have visualized, as well as thinking of sentient beings joining us in this recitation and in the deliberation sharing of the Dharma. Let there be outpouring of sense of inspiration as well as a sense of love, compassion, filling our whole mainstream. With these, we'll say these recitations together and to the extent possible, try to generate actual sense of what these words mean. Let's for a while hold this spirit of bodhicitta within our mind. Aspiration to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. The purpose is to serve sentient beings. And the means of doing that is to first attain full awakening so that we could be of utmost true benefit to all sentient beings. Why do sentient beings, including ourselves, need to strive for something bigger, higher, lasting? Because we are bound to suffering, bound to the causes of sufferings in the contaminated actions, karmas that we create, some even non-virtuous, some may be virtuous, yet still contaminated, limited by what causes them in the form of afflictions. They in turn rooted in ignorance, despite the fact that we all 
without any exception. We all share in this, as I said, rightful, justified, fundamental, yet not fulfilled aspiration to have happiness, if possible, the lasting one, to be free from suffering, if possible, once and all. But that always remains a mere wish. So there is a mismatch between what we wish for from the depth of our heart and what we get to experience, despite our efforts. Surely something is amiss. Even if we may not be pinpoint exactly what it is, but definitely it must be in the form of ignorance, of not knowing, if at all knowing, misknowing, misunderstanding. There's a mismatch between what reality is and how we perceive it to be. Unless and until we address that by identifying it exactly and then addressing it, facing, addressing it thoroughly. Until we succeed in doing that for ourselves, for others, these aspirations will merely remain as a wishful thinking. Wishful thinking never ever getting closer to realizing it, if at all going further and further from the possibility of realizing. So for sure, some kind of ignorance, misknowing, misunderstanding, is to blame Thus, along with our very benevolent aspiration to awaken fully for the sake of all sentient beings, on top of that, let's determine to really make progress in actually nudging closer and closer to such a possibility, beginning with finding out what is the root cause in the form of some kind of ignorance. That means cultivating its corresponding wisdom. And since this is a misunderstanding between what reality is and how we perceive it to be. Yes, that wisdom must take the form of understanding the reality for what it is. So let's all be determined to do that, motivated to do that, and towards that end, take delight 
joy in this prospect of studying and going through this text in particular, in general, and then ninth chapter in particular together. Sharing, discussion, reflections, that there be an actual progress on the ground in inching closer and closer to such a real, realization. So let this be our motivation for the session today. Okay, so welcome to this uh, this Dharma discussion, Dharma reflection, and uh, we have all along been having this opportunity of studying, reflecting on and internalizing this, the teachings enshrined in this wonderful, wonderful masterpiece from Venerable for months and months, years together maybe. And this has really been one of the highlights of my being here. Let's look forward to meeting Shantideva. And these sessions have been wonderful, kind of used to feel all oh, at this such a wonderful opportunity to weekly study this. And we are yet here, yet again here, uh, continuing the ninth chapter, which Venerable should have continued, but Venerable <laughs> keeps saying, you do, you do. <laughs> so I, I take this mental of uh, leading our discussion, but should be a joint adventure, joint enterprise and joint, in some places, adventure also. Yeah, some terrains might be totally unfamiliar for us, so there will be adventure part of it. Yeah. So, uh, we are all familiar with this uh, prayer, yeah, the dedication prayer that we do with the sublime and precious Bodhisattva. And not yet born, be born, just born, never decline, but increase ever more. So it has three, three, Features in there. Matyeva Jeva. To generate this bodhicitta in those who have not 
yet generated it. And then those who have generated it may never decline. And on top of that, may it ever increase more. So, one of the Tibetan masters, very renowned master, used to apply that prayer, this Shantideva's text, and divides chapters, the nine chapters, three each to these three steps. <laughs> so this wisdom part is to increase that bodhicitta spirit ever more, let alone keeping it from declining, but even boosting it and bolstering it and making it even stronger. So of the nine chapters, the first, first three would be more or less principally, mainly in the spirit of giving rise to bodhicitta, striving to bodhicitta, creating the base for its cultivation and then eventually developing it. And the next three chapters, including patience, uh, the fourth, fifth, sixth chapter, chapters, they will be mainly in the spirit of keeping what has been generated from declining, kind of securing it. And then seven, eight, and nine, more particularly eight and nine, there it's means of really augmenting it, enhancing it, strengthening it. So without further ado, because we have already, we are all very familiar with the general structure, not just general structure, we have really taken time uh, under venerable direction and guidance and leadership in really delving deep into these chapters, into these chapter by chapter, very thoroughly. So there wouldn't be any need for going through that. We just start right away with chapter nine. <laughs> chapter nine, be prepared. <laughs> all along we have been hearing everything is there, there, there. Right now, all of a sudden, we say, no, they are not even there. <laughs> At least that's how it might strike. But we have to kind of really struggle our way through it and sort through it in really getting the right understanding of not falling into the true extremes of complete nihilism and I denying everything, all that of overestimation in the form of kind of mm -hmm. superimposing things that are not there. So hopefully we'll be able to find our middle ground in the midst of this. In the midst of this struggle here to the sides, right? we'll, we'll definitely do that. Before long, we'll get into that. So. I call upon everyone to expect that, yet at the same time, uh, be determined to weather it and come out even stronger <laughs> with the food, even stronger 
strongly grounded at the same time with the confidence in not falling into any of these two extremes. So, uh, for the sake of uh, convenience, we are all using the same text, same translation uh, by Gishe Turji Damdul. Uh, I think if I'm, I'm not mistaken, his translation may be the first one to come uh, out of chapter 9 in verse form. In verse form, I think. I see. I see. Okay, so he did that. So, Venerable, so so thank thank you so much. I must thank you because I may be in the process of redoing it again. <laughs> so I feel I was a little unsure whether I could do it or not, and, but. Yeah, so it's so good to know that somebody has already done that before. I see. But I have never come across it because uh, partly I usually don't look for English because I already have Tibetans, so, so many of them. So unless I need an easy easy translation, ready translation, I wouldn't really know about it. So the one that I have come across is Step Bachelors, which is in prose form for this chapter 9. And then there was another one from England, someone by the name of, pardon? Not Pemakara, but some from England have done two, a, a collaboration between two people. But they are again, not just nine chapters, I think all of the chapters are in prose. That's highly, highly, pardon? No, that's somebody else. Pardon? Yeah. Yes, which I uh, heard to be very good, but they're not just the chapter 9. I think most, most of the chapters, or maybe all of the chapters, are in prose form. But maybe that's how it helps in getting the message across more clearly. So anyway, anyway, so... We will be in yet another <laughs> process of coming up with the third version. <laughs> anyway, uh, not that that's where my interest is, but I'll, I will definitely need to comment uh, on the text itself. But using this as a medium, I would also be touching on translations as well. But first and foremost, my homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, to the whole line of teachings that came all the way to Shantideva. And I'm always amazed by how much he has meant to the whole world. And uh, if he's not yet Buddha, I mean, I'm amazed at how merits kept pouring on him <laughs> from his work, uh, both of this text and uh, the other text as well. By the way, these two texts, uh, they are, this, this one is Bodhisattva, the other one is Labakundu Shikshya Samujaya. The two combined almost covers the entirety of the Buddha's teaching, particularly the teachings on the Bodhisattva's way of life from both the 
wisdom and method aspect, and from both the rational and scriptural authority aspect. So combined together, it's a wonderful, wonderful blend, wonderful combination. Out of which Shantideva's Bodhicharvatara is approaching the Bodhisattva's way of life, uh, all facets of his practice, not in exclusion of the uh, prior practices, the foundational practices, including them as well, but more focused on the Bodhisattva's aspect, all the way to for the awakening. He approaches this, uh, of course, by relying on scriptural authorities here and there, but mainly uh, approaching through rational understanding, reasoning, wisdom. So that's a very uh, special part about this. We have seen very clearly in the sixth chapter how he approaches the topic of anger and the need for patience, how to cultivate it, all of those through very rational approach. And that's kind of something that we witness all across the text. Whereas in the Shiksha Samujaya, he approaches the same topic of Bodhisattva's way of life, but mainly um, referring, pulling from the Buddha's teachings. So it's a collection of scriptural uh, evidences to the same topic where it is presenting it from the wisdom, rational part of it. So we can see when we can combine the two, we will have a full, uh, what do you call, dimension and full uh, support for cultivation for our uh, pursuing the Bodhisattva ideal. So it would be good to eventually study Shiksha Samajaya also. So in my homage to all the teachers who have kept this teaching on through the ages, in Tibet there were quite a few of masters who were very, very well known in their uh, authority on uh, Bodhisattva Jarya, not just in terms of understanding it intellectually, but most of internalizing, integrating it in their light. And uh, so much so that they were kind of unquestionably accepted as, as Bodhisattvas. One was Yawak Gwesangba. I think he is a country master, maybe, we say to have attained full awakening. By the way, those who have attained full awakening, there are many of them, not everyone is uh, that well-known. Uh, they kind of kept low-key and went straight up without. Now maybe keeping low-key, but at the same time as busy and serving sentient beings. And then more recently, there was Jesse Tome Sangwo, the author of the 37 Practices of the Bodhisattva, very popularly known as being Bodhisattva. Like in Theravadan countries, there are, even to this day, uh, masters who are revered as being Arhats. And it's wonderful that the, 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 the stream of Arhatship never ended since from the time of Buddha's it's amazing. Sometimes His Holiness calls for 
strong practitioners. We cannot have all these wonderful teachings, the profound things just in the text. We have to have some living examples. And it's very true. At the same time, he's always says, yes, I also know practice is something that one has to keep close to yourself, hidden, not kind of shown off. But at the same time, we definitely need to have someone that we could so confidently point to and say, this is the example of someone who has attained the path of seeing, the path of meditation, the tenth ground, close to becoming Buddha. At the time of the, at the time of Tsongkhapa and maybe a generation or later, there were even discussions referring to some other Kirtub Nausankhyasov. There were discussions among uh, practitioners, Kelu practitioners, maybe a generation after Tsongkhapa. Kirtub Nausankhyasov came a little later. There were references to him saying, kind of quietly speaking, oh, we heard that he's close to becoming Buddha. Like, so, so such discussions were happening. And uh, we need to have this. We need to have that. We cannot be complacent in just knowing the teaching or doing what little we can, but we must up our effort in really becoming a live example of someone who has, someone who has shamatha, vipassana, and now has entered the path of uh, accumulation, someone is on the path of liberation, someone has just seen the reality directly, Arya. I mean, that's, it's all dependent on causes and conditions. You cannot say this this type of area, this type of, this type of era that we cannot achieve. No, it's the general, uh, the general criteria or gen, the general uh, uh, state of things, maybe other, other Otherwise, but on an individual basis, as Buddha says in Pratimoksha Sutra, if you practice this, yeah, the Aradhship will never end. So, likewise, uh, we should all strive to really, as we all are doing, but we need to up our efforts in really having more and more live, actual uh, experiences within us. So, I was. Uh, also thinking of paying my respects to the translators mm. who have kept these teachings intact and also kind of really read, uh, done a wonderful job in, in translating the text so oh, well, including now into English by Gishu Doji Damdul. By the way, Gishu Doji Damdul and I uh, we are from the same dialectic school, and we eventually ended up at Epung Monastery together. And uh, although he's called da- Doji Damdul, I'm called Damdul Namjel, but somehow people called us by our Damdul name. It is because it is the first name, second name. So there was a time when we were both not Geshes, and we were all called Damdul. And if somebody comes and inquires for Damdul, we would end up getting the wrong person. Eventually, I became Geshe first, and then the problem was solved. But then he became Geshe later on. Again, the same problem. 
Okay, so with those homages to beings from Buddha to the present masters to whom these homages are due, I will now uh, get into what I need, I, I'm supposed to do. <laughs> So, yes, uh, and for our in-house distribution, there is a, a word uh, uh, copy of it, word file of it. Uh, and I have introduced uh, some uh, new breaking system, kind of a uh, spacing ideas, except for that, nothing has been changed. Uh, so that's something people have to know. Uh, I don't know if it appears in your copy or not, but in my copy it says translated into English by Kishi Doji Damdul. As he said, that was my insertion. I, I put it in there. Otherwise, everything is same to same as the original translation. And based on that, I'll be commenting on it, both on the text as well as on the translation, for the sake of uh, getting better understanding. Nothing other than that. <laughs> okay. So this whole chapter can be divided into three, three broad outlines. It's important, it's helpful to know this. The first is, why there's the need to generate the wisdom realizing ultimate reality. And that for that, there's just one stanza, the first one. <laughs> the first only the first stanza deals with the why part of it. Why do we need it? And then the rest of the stanzas deal with how to generate it. And then the last one is giving some Encouragement, yes, one must strive to generate it. So that's important, helpful to get a get a hang of the whole chapter in this space. Just three things to remember, everything is in there. <laughs> and then come back, keep coming back to where the main outline is, and that will help put things in perspective. So for the first outline, that of why touching on the why part of it. Why do we need wisdom realizing ultimate reality? It's just the first stanza. And the stanza, as part of the translation reads, the sage pronounced all these branches of teachings for the sake of promoting the wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering should generate wisdom. So, this one one way of explaining it as a natural approach, since this is the ninth chapter, and it is just following the eighth chapter, where it mainly focused on concentration, on stabilization, on something, uh, although it spends uh, huge part of it in teaching the 
methods of exchanging, of equalizing and exchanging self and others, but it also touches it within the broader perspective of, or the broader context of how to cultivate uh, the concentration base. And that is shamatha. Or it touches on the the eighth, eighth chapter, right? The eighth chapter touched on the, the the physical environment conducive to such a cultivation, as well as mental environment conducive to such a cultivation, and then the actual process of cultivating a good base of uh, concentration practice, uh, ideally uh, leading one to. At the very least, shamatha, state of uh, achievement, state of concentration. So when it says the sage pronounce all these branches of teachings, one way of referring to all these branches would be all these teachings surrounding shamatha that the author touched in the eighth chapter. And thus, they are all taught for the purpose of eventually generating vipassana into ultimate reality. So that's one way of explaining this, which would be almost like a very common way of doing it, because having just touched on something, and then now for you following it with something else, you connect the two by saying that was meant to lead, serve as a basis to eventually lead to this next one, which has to have that as to have that prior thing as a foundation. That's not but this way of explaining it is not that popular. So the other way of saying is the Buddha taught all these previous all these practices, all these perfection practices touched dwelled or touched on in the previous chapters up to the ninth, right? Including the eighth, up to the eighth chapter, including it. All those branches of teachings, all those uh, paramitas, perfection teachings that the Buddha taught in these previous chapters, touched on in these previous chapters. So in a way, the author is saying, what I touched on in terms of the eight in terms, in terms of the main contents of the eighth chapter, namely the the contents being the first five of the six paramitas, they were all what Buddha taught, and Buddha taught that for the sake of the wisdom. So, so, so this way of explaining this, uh, explaining this stanza, the first two lines is more popular. Uh, and uh, and in terms of making sense of that, uh, we try to see a causal relationship between the first five parameter practices, which would be typical of a practice of a bodhisattva, right? Parameter practices, and then the last of the six parameters, namely the parameter of wisdom. And and we see this connection or this uh, relationship in a causal sense. 
that the first six parameters uh, serve as a cause uh, to this practice of wisdom as an effect of following out of it. And that in this respect, uh, wisdom is uniquely the result, and the remaining six, remaining five parameters are the cause. So here, the wisdom, if we only understand wisdom in general, even if we say the wisdom here pertains to wisdom, wisdom understanding the ultimate reality, even allowing that also, the mere generation of a wisdom understanding emptiness doesn't necessarily have to depend on the first five parameters uh, preceding them. So definitely the wisdom being referred to is, here is not the wisdom, even if it be the wisdom of understanding emptiness, not the wisdom generated from hearing and reflection of the three wisdoms, wisdom induced from hearing, wisdom induced from reflection, wisdom induced from internalization or integration, meditation of these three. The first two definitely is not the wisdom in this sense, because for the cultivation of an understanding of ultimate reality, by a wisdom induced through learning by a wisdom induced through reflection, there's no need of practicing the parameters, the six, the five parameters before that. Because as we will un unpack this, this wisdom of understanding emptiness at the level of in wisdom induced by learning, wisdom induced by reflection. When we say wisdom induced by reflection, that's when one should have, one would have already retain, uh, attained or arrived at a unwavering conviction, unwavering uh, inferential understanding, unwavering conviction in the ultimate reality. So it's, wisdom at that time uh, should be a strong well-grounded one, not just based on one's own hearing and learning, but uh, something that one has arrived at a very uh, unmistaken conviction of it, yet still at the inferential level, not at an in integrated gut level of understanding it. So such a wisdom, even if it is the wisdom of understanding ultimate reality, namely, emptiness as understood by the Prasangika Madhyamikas. Such a wisdom doesn't re depend on the practice of bodhicitta, uh, the practice of, let alone the practice of these five paramitas. It doesn't de depend on the practice of uh, bodhicitta even. Uh, because those pursuing arhatship, uh, individual liberation from the bondage of uh, afflictions and the karmas induced by them, namely from the bondage of samsara, uh, when they, even they generate this wisdom uh, way early on their spiritual journey, uh, at the very least, uh, at the very least, uh, in the midst of their path of accumulation. And when they arrive at 
the path of preparation they would have already generated, um, not just an in inferential understanding of the wisdom, wisdom induced by learning and wisdom induced by reflection, but even uh, further advanced it uh, to the level of uh, having further advanced it uh, and brought it to the level where they have that wisdom on the basis of, or on the foundation uh, of shamatha and vipassana combined. And then not just that, they even further advance it to eventually attaining full arhatship. And they do so, uh, of course, supported by other uh, method aspects of practices rooted in this genuine renunciation spirit of renunciation or spirit of determination to be free from samsara. Uh, on the basis of this, they have developed it, but then have kind of advanced it to the level of finally actually attaining arhatship. And that wisdom is very well founded and not just very well founded, it's kind of very uh, strongly uh, complemented by the inner in, inner uh, cultivation of con concentration practices in the form of shamatha and vipassana. That kind of a practice doesn't precede the cultivation of bodhicitta and the cultivation of the, uh, the five perfection of practices. So then the question is, what kind of wisdom is being spoken of here? <laughs> Surely this is a practice of the bodhisattvas, and the bodhisattvas are interested in attaining full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings, interested in del delivering sentient beings out of samsara, to be able to do so not only the one who is aspiring to do that, he or him, he or she has to be freed from samsara, but also be freed from the obstruction to omniscience. And for that, obstruction to omniscience, obstruction to full awakening in the form of the subtlest, uh, what you call traces, or latencies of the afflictions can be eventually counteracted by nothing less than uh, a wisdom of understanding emptiness, which has been advanced, uh, developed to that level of now being able to serve as a direct antidote to the subtle stains of the afflictions. So that kind of a wisdom definitely needs be preceded by not just the practice of bodhicitta, but also the practice of the other perfections. In that respect, in that respect, the, that kind of a wisdom stands out as unique uh, in terms of being the only one capable, only one responsible or capable or only one uh, needed, or only one that is capable of actually um, kind of counteracting uh, the 
the, the corresponding abstraction or uh, corresponding cognitive abstraction. And no other perfection practices, be of generosity, ethical conduct, none of them can, can do that. So, whereas if we say this wisdom is the, is the Dharmakaya, this wisdom is something that leads to Dharmakaya, right? Uh, or, uh, or some aspect of Bodhisattva, then uh, all other perfection practices would have a corresponding weightage, a corresponding uh, importance uh, like the wisdom place. So in that way, their, their relationship in terms of what needs, what, what, what is needed, what precedes, uh, can be, what do you call, shifted among them. Whereas, if we understand it in this respect, then it's only wisdom. It's only the wisdom that can pull it off. Of course, with the support of all the other perfection practices, uh, but but nonetheless, when it comes to the actual action of it, it can be undertaken or it can be made possible by the wisdom only alone. So the sage pronounced all these branches of teachings. One way of understanding what we call here branches, in Tibetan it is yala, branches. Very often in the Tibetan commentaries, it calls them as chuso. Chuso means collection of causes. The sage pronounced all these collection of causes, but specifically putting the, these practices covered in the first eight chapters as in the, in the light of being causes for this wisdom to be the result of, of, it, of it. And in that respect, this, this wisdom has to be not just an ordinary wisdom, even if that is a wisdom understanding emptiness, a wisdom at the level of one induced by hearing, one induced by reflection, even one induced by meditation uh, would not be enough. Uh, to be the result for these causes to precede it. Because, as I said earlier, uh, wisdom, understanding, emptiness, even at the level of having shamatha and vipassana combined in its, uh, in its, uh, in its strength, in its dimension, uh, doesn't need perfection practices to precede them, uh, let alone uh, perfection practices to precede them, nor does it need to be preceded by bodhicitta. But when we speak of this particular wisdom, which is uh, the antidote to the... Here, when we are speaking of antidote, we are not speaking just in general terms. Or I should uh, qualify this antidote as the direct antidote. The, the Tibetan term is nguenye, direct, actual antidote. Some some level of wisdom that can actually pull it off, actually, actually, uh, what do you call uh, eliminate the the corresponding obstruction of obstruction to omniscience, not just antidotes in the general sense, but in actual sense of uh, the execution level of really being able to pull it off. So, in that respect, such a wisdom. Uh, definitely needs to be preceded by the uh, five perfection practices mm -hmm. as the 
causal collections required to give rise to this wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering should generate wisdom. Now, the, now when we say, once we, have, uh, once we have established what this wisdom stands for, uh, which is a wisdom that is uh, not just in general terms, but in actual execution terms, the antidote to the uh, obstructions to omniscience, obstructions to full awakening, then we have to make sense. Therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering should generate the wisdom. There is a slight, uh, what do you call, uh, mismatch. Because those who wish to pacify suffering, that could include those who pursue personal liberation. They also want to pacify suffering. By the way, suffering is uh, suffering is limited only to samsara. If I may say so, do you agree? There's no samsara. There's no suffering beyond samsara. Which means beyond the level of being arhat. In the case of shravakas and solitary realizers, or beyond the beyond the limit of being Arya, in the case of the bodhisattvas. Beyond that level, there is no suffering. There is no suffering. No, of course not. Aryas don't have the suffering. Uh, we may, yeah, in the case of uh, arhats, in that very life when they have attained arhatship, uh, there could be some instances of some uh, limitations uh, in terms of their in terms of their conduct, in terms of their habitual patterns, not out of any afflictions, but out of habituation. There could be some uh, instances of some unbecoming conduct and whatnot, but one cannot say they suffer. But in, in some sense, uh, they still, at least from the Shavaka perspective, Shavaka, Prateka Buddha perspective, they consider their aggregates still the truth of suffering. So it may have some, some indications of being, uh, being problematic or being source of a problem. But, I suspect whether they actually undergo actual pain, both physically or mentally. Anyway, in the case of the Bodhisattvas, without having to wait until they become Arhats. By the way, we have to also remember Bodhisattvas do become arhat, Arhats before becoming Buddhas. But they do not intentionally pursue it for their own interest. But what about pursuing it for the interest of others? I suspect they do. But the priority is, of course, the well-being of others. In that respect, only as a means, only as a means to attain full awakening, they may concede to striving for 
liberation, but never for their own sake. But for the sake of others, they do. In a way, their, their effort, their effort against afflictions, even though we have heard that Bodhisattvas do not uh, as earnestly, I don't know if that's the right term or not, I always struggle in conveying this in they do not as earnestly as those pursuing individual liberation do, they do not as earnestly as, what do you call, combat the afflictions, but rather leave the door open for even utilizing, uh, employing the afflictions for the sake, for the benefit of others. Yet, of course, uh, making sure that they do not succumb to the afflictions themselves in the first place. But once they have that kind of a confidence, then they are even open to even uh, utilizing the afflictions uh, for the for the benefit of others, or utilizing afflictions uh, to eventually uh, turn the table back on the afflictions themselves. Uh, so their approach to afflictions is slightly different than always kind of wording off from that. But nonetheless, they do consider afflictions as uh, as as something to be abandoned, for sure, without doubt, at any given stage, irrespective of what approach they may take or they may seem to be taking. But directly or indirectly, the aim is to combat the afflictions. And that too, to the subtlest level of not just their roots, roots, but even to their subtlest drags of stains, right? But in terms of sufferings, the Aryas, Bodhisattva Aryas, from the Arya level, they don't have, even though they have way uh, they have lot, uh, way much to practice to attain full awakening, but since they hit the level of Aryaship, the path of seeing they do not suffer physically or mentally from the strength of their inner cultivation. They can overcome and oh, they can overcome and they can, their love and compassion and genuine sense of others uh, can overwhelm whatever unbecoming uh, conditions they may be going through uh, on their bodily level. But in their mental level, there's never the space for any such sufferings to dwell on because of their uh, strength of love and compassion like that. So they do not have suffering. But but still, this statement, these two lines, therefore those who wish to pacify suffering should generate the wisdom. After having identified this wisdom specifically as the one that is an antidote to, or direct antidote rather, to the, to the uh, obstruction to Omniscience, uh, we cannot make, we cannot justify this statement that all those who wish to pacify suffering should generate this particular wisdom. But in Tibetan, when we 
in Tibetan, there is a reference to there is the, the suffering is qualified as the ta, ta, ta. So there is an indication of two sufferings, two types of sufferings being indicated here. In the English, it doesn't come out there. So therefore, if we read the if we read the lines and understand it on the face of it, then on the on its face value, then what it is what is said in the first two lines and what what is conveyed in the next two lines do not match. But in Tibetan, the suffering is qualified as referring to some two types of suffering. This is this Tibetan term ta, tungen ta. Ta means two. If we use tungen nam, then there are many sufferings. If we say tungen ta, that means two sufferings. So here, definitely speaking of two broad categories of sufferings. So they are sufferings of oneself and sufferings of others. Now, those who wish to specify those two sufferings, both of oneself and others, which can only be done thoroughly, fully by Buddha. For that, one should generate that wisdom. And after all, it makes full, perfect sense to present this wisdom specifically in the light of something that is capable of counteracting, directly counteracting the obstruction to omniscience, because we have come to the ninth chapter after having gone through the first eight dwelling on the remaining uh, five perfection practices of the bodhisattvas. And we are talking of bodhisattvas practices and culminating in full awakening, which ultimately depends on the wisdom to pull it off. Of course, with the supporting force of the remaining six, five perfections. So the five perfections are the cause. The five perfection practices are the cause of which uh, the, the wisdom at that level of being able to counteract serve as an antidote to the uh, to the. Um, obstruction to awakening or omniscience uh, is the result. And therefore, those who wish to pacify sufferings, the true suffering, that is definitely the bodhisattvas. It says you should generate this wisdom. There's no way around it. So this wisdom is the wisdom of understanding emptiness. Of course, emptiness in the understanding of the Prasangika Mathemikas. Of course, there can be so many levels of Mm, notions that may be termed or called emptiness. Uh, even in non-Buddhist uh, philosophical schools uh, from in the East, from yeah, in the East, uh, they can be. A, they may use this term emptiness uh, quite openly, uh, but they mean different. But here we are speaking of. With the wisdom understanding emptiness, or the wisdom understanding, in other terms, the certainness dependent origination, as understood by, as propounded and expounded by the Pasangika Madhimikas, is what is being referred to here. 
So I propose a different way of translating this. The sage taught, not just not just proposed it or propounded it or put it out for consideration. The sage taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of the wisdom, not just promoting it for the sake of the wisdom. Not just promoting, right? For the sake of the wisdom. To be able to generate that wisdom, all these practices has to be, has to go, has to precede them. Therefore, those who wish to pacify, I want to say, sufferings of both self and others. At least self and others within bracket of both. It's something even the text itself says. Those, therefore, those who wish to pacify sufferings of both in bracket, in, in, bracket, self and others, should generate the wisdom. I would say, the sage taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of the wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify sufferings of both self and others should generate the wisdom. And there we see clearly the causal relationship between the first five perfections and the sixth perfection particularly the sixth perfection at the level of being able to serve as an ent direct antidote to the uh, obstructions to omniscience. And therefore, those who are on the Pobodhisattva paths, they should not lose sight of aiming to specify the sufferings of both oneself and others. And for that, this wisdom is indispensable. Okay, so now that should do. Uh, for this stanza, because we will explore it even more. Now the next one, how to go about pursuing, how to go about pursuing this wisdom, how to go about even, what do you call, uh, making progress in understanding this, um, this, this wisdom of understanding, subtle dependent relation, subtle dependent origination as centered, as, as, propounded by the Prasangika Madhimikas. For that, there are several steps. It is not that easy. It has several steps. And also, one has to come up with so many safeguards from kind of falling into un, falling into misunderstandings of this. But the first step is to understand the notion of two truths. Conventional and ultimate, these are accepted as being the two truths. This is a very crucial topic, the two truths. Of course, in terms of the term, terms used here, again, it may be something common, not just with all the schools, all the philosophical schools of Buddhism, but even with non-Buddhists even. They may speak in those terms, I think. His Holiness sometimes uh, says that, yes, that's in terms of the usage of the term, uh, that may be even present in the non-Buddhists also. But at the same time, this is a very important um, topic. Very important topic, very important theme to really kind of uh, get one's grip on. And it is not that easy. It has to be approached step by step. So just to give you an example, 
in the Buddhist philosophical school. By the way, when we speak of philosophical schools, we are not speaking of, say, in the case of Tibetan Buddhism, Sakya, Nyingma, Kajig, these are indigenous orders of Tibetan Buddhism. Each one of them would be uh, complete in having their Vajrayana dimension of the practice, as well as the Sutra Mahayana dimension of the practice, as well as the individual liberation dimension of the practice. And, and within that, they would also have uh, a, a full presentation of these, what we call, what we might see as philosophical ladders, philosophical rungs of a ladder leading up to uh, the highest understanding uh, philosophically. Because philosophical understanding is very crucial in developing this understanding of the wisdom in the correct way. So in Buddhism, philosophy is not uh, not separate from the practice. It is very much part of the practice. The philosophical understanding serves almost like the scaffold by which then you develop the structure of good heart, good heart, wise heart, but with the scaffold of philosophical understanding. The higher, the better. And thus, there is, there is this, uh, there's this system of what we call philosophical schools, in the, mostly talked about in the Tibetan Buddhism. But very often people mistake these philosophical senate systems as being a, an invention of the Tibetan masters, which is definitely not. Uh, we have seen evidences of philosophical tenets uh, scriptures in the in the danger in the work in the works of commentarial works of the Indian masters of early 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 time, including of even at a later time, including that of Aryadeva, Baba Viveka, and all. And also we see this in Shantideva's text also, uh, though not as structured as in other, other texts, but, uh, but in the works of those uh, Indian masters, we see them presented in the same order as we pursue the tenet uh, system studies. So without going deeper into it, but what is important is to understand how this topic of true truths is approached by them all, in a very systematically progressive way to get our hand or hang of the two truths. Uh, it would be good to have to start with a rough idea of what the Vaibhasika's presentation is, what the Sautantrika's position is, what the Chittamatra's position is, what the Madhamika's position is. So without going into much detail, just to give you an idea, in the case of the Vaibhasikas, they speak of true truths just within the, within, the, uh, within the context of the compounded phenomena, within the, yeah, within the context of compounded phenomena. They do not include non-compounded phenomena into the true truths. They just speak of 
two truths within the compounded phenomena. But they are also, they divide it like this. This is conventional truth, this is ultimate truth. By the way, when we speak of these two truths at the Vibhashika, Sautantrika level, maybe, yeah, up to in, at the Vibhashika uh, and Sautantrika level, even to call this truth, even this, to call this other truth as ultimate may be a misnomer. Yeah, it is, there's nothing ultimate about what they present as, uh, what they present as this ultimate truth, what we call ultimate truth. It is only when we deal with these two truths at the Chitramatra level and at the Prasangika level, then we begin to make a sense of its being the ultimate mode of existence, the fundamental mode of existence of thing, as opposed to all the rest of them, which fall into the convention truth. But uh, that's not the sense this uh, approach in the Sautantika and Vaibhasika system. So let me give you an example. In the Vaibhasika system, we speak of true truths only within the context of the compounded phenomena. And, and there, and there, they make this, in a way, it's a way of training us to think in terms of true truths and eventually to hone it up to the level of the Prasangika so that we will be much more well-grounded and well-facilitated in, 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 in uh, penetrating into it. So they come up with a very rough understanding. Suppose you have a golden pot. Can golden pot be broken? Somewhere, if you really hit hard, it can be broken. So let's speak of a golden pot. There's a golden pot, and it is pot and also gold. Now you hit it so hard. On a, on a, um, now you hit it very hard with the hammer. Break the pot. No matter how hard you look into the break, the, the broken part, you cannot see hot. But you still see gold. Gold withstands its identity, even after being hit on it, but not the pot. So say, they say that the pot is conventional truth. Gold which could stand its identity, even after being broken into pieces, is the ultimate truth. It's a way of training to think in terms of ultimate truth and convention truth. Now, in the Sautantrika system, convention truth and ultimate truth is quite easy. The entirety of phenomena is divided into compounded and uncompounded. And everything compounded is ultimate truth. Everything uncompounded is, is uh, conventional truth. So there we make, we, we make this sense of what one is conventional and one is ultimate. Although, as I warned you, the usage of the term ultimate is a misnomer here. But there's nothing ultimate about it. But something solid, something solid, more solid than the other, something more sustainable than the other, kind of, kind of gives that additional status. So everything uncompounded is very abstract. Everything uncompounded is very abstract to the point that we might call conceptual. Those are only concepts. 
But then everything uncom everything compounded, right? Everything uncompounded is abstract kind and it's kind of ethereal abstract. Thus there is less of a solidity, less of a sustainability about it. But everything compounded, like books and everything, has something, some concreteness about it compared with those abstract things. That's why the whole category of the compounded phenomena is called ultimate truth. So there's nothing ultimate about it. It's kind of say more reliable truth. Let's call it reliable, more reliable truth, other one less reliable. Now, so here we can see the division of the phenomena into two, two truths by way of really dividing it into two. Now from the Chitramatra point of view, Chitramatra point onward, the, the whole perspective shifts, the whole approach shifts. And we will now begin to speak of ultimate truth and, and conventional truth just on the basis of every single thing. That true, not in a way that we could divide them up, but in a way they are intermixed. But yet at the same, same, same time, we can tease them apart in terms of their aspects. So from that, from the Chitramatra point onward, the, 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 the topic of two truths kind of really begin to take a very uh, drastic shift. And thus, from then, from that time, from that point onward, then the so-called, the other truth, other than the conventional truth, begins to uh, gain some connotation of being ultimate, being some more fundamental uh, truth than the other one. The other one would be seen as a more superficial, on the surface level, truth. And then this so-called ultimate truth has uh, more of a sense of being the ultimate nature, more ultimate nature of the thing. But we speak of two truths on just one one each and every phenomena, and that too, not in a sense of kind of dividing it or cutting it into two pieces, but rather in a way they are completely blended, completely uh, intermixed. Yet, at the same time, having this sense of one being relatively um, superficial, the other being more in-depth nature of the thing. And that, that notion, uh, is kept through to the Prasangika Madhimika, except the the depth of that ultimate nature becomes more deeper. So this way of training in thinking in terms of two truth is very crucial. Eventually, when one understands the Prasangika Madhimika or, or study the Prasangika Madhimika, which we consider to be the Buddha's final intent when it comes to explaining the actual mode of existence of things, then this understanding of the true truths in that in that light will come very handy. But it really helps in understanding from the from the from the scratch in how the lower schools present it. So 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 this topic of the true truths is brought up as a as a as a way of laying the ground to eventually establish the point of how to go about pursuing this wisdom of understanding emptiness or the ultimate truth. 
and how it is different, how it is different uh, from the from the uh, positions of the lower tenets, lower tenet holders. Not just different, but how uh, it kind of supersedes how those presented by the lower schools are faulty, and how um, the present presentation done progressively, secular, secular. Kind of is much more, much more um, significant, and as at, at at the same time, more in sync with the reality. Ultimately, we have to understand the reality through and through, without any any room for any misunderstanding. That's what is being aimed at, and what is uh, considered to have arrived at the Prasangika level. But to be able to do so in such a way that one avoids all ways, all possible ways of misinterpreting it and compromising it. Uh, unless we succeed in doing that, we wouldn't arrive at a, a, a an, an authentic understanding of it. That's why the following verses, to a certain extent, goes in 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 having this dialogue between the lower tenets and the prasangikas. Prasangikas on the one hand and the lower tenets on the other. So I'm uh, warning you of this. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, with that, we can stop here. Unless people have maybe just one question, if people have or, or, or not, uh, we could stop here. I don't want to take the one question, but I am really curious. Um, in terms of the golden bowl metaphor yes um what would be an sort of a practical application of those two versions of truth with a, a person or one's own practice like seeing the broken bowl and and seeing that level of truth dissolve but seeing a lasting gold mm -hmm. um how would you see that uh, uh can you give an example of using that paradigm in a in one's life it leads to eventually making a distinction between what is the ultimate basis for everything and what compared with that is uh, less sustaining. Eventually leading us to understanding everything in the light of being thoroughly, dependently arising and thus thoroughly lacking any inherent existence, which is ever the, ever the underlying fact of everything whereas all the rest are mere constructs on that basis, eventually leading to that. And that would have significant influence in employing this to our afflictions. Because the understanding is all the afflictions are underlain by the misconception with regard to the reality. And the reality being nothing has an intrinsic nature. Where Whereas we tend to project that and cling on to that. And, and, and we do so on the basis of the fact that they are different things. Things take different causes. So we concretize that on the surface level. And based on that, we project some kind of an intrinsic identity on them. And then this understanding eventually grows into then appreciating the fact that, yes, what we see as concrete, is not as concrete as we see. Rather, deep down, everything boils down to being unfindable and totally devoid of any inherent existence. 
And from a Prasangika Madhyamika perspective, uh, both through rational understanding as well as through scriptural backing, it points to the fact that at the at the root of all of our afflictions lies this misunderstanding regarding the ultimate nature. So that understanding is kind of helped to be built through these things, and eventually it can serve as uh, as the direct, most capable antidote to our own uh, ignorance. Because earlier I just referred to ignorance, leaving it open for interpretation in terms of what form it might be. But we say that between the two types of ignorance, one more in the sense of not knowing and the misknowing, the misknowing part of the ignorance is more crucial. So from from maybe our common perspective point of view, the grasping at the grasping at as mm, substantial self sufficient self is considered to be root of all the afflictions. And there is a sense of concretized notion of a self. So nothing escapes uh, is nothing escapes uh, being exposed as lacking any inherent existence, including the self. So, so from our common understanding of what is it, what lies at the root of afflictions, namely in the form of this grasping at a substantial self-sufficient self. Even there also we can see how such an understanding of denying or refuting any intrinsic intrinsicality, in, including that of self, can help. Thank you. Maybe we will stop here today. <laughs>